Hello there and welcome to the Truth About Local Government podcast. Local government is a pillar of our community. We all contribute financially and rely on these regional organisations for a multitude of services. However, sometimes, as a member of the public, it can be difficult to understand what challenges they are facing, the solutions they are implementing, and fundamentally, what a council does on a day-to-day basis. I'm absolutely delighted today to have a guest on who has worked uh, in the dark arts of recruitment uh, before making the transition across into SEN casework. Um, so please give a warm welcome um, to Kelsey Wall. Kelsey, hi today. I'm really well, actually. Really well. I've just started on this uh, on calorie counting, so it's uh, <laughs> I'm struggling a bit with that. So <laughs> I'm going to persevere through. Um, but thank you for coming on. I know how busy you are, so I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on. Um, so as you know from our conversation, the purpose of this podcast is to really make it really clear to the people at home who don't work with councils um, and you know don't have you know any real interaction with them to understand. You know, what does an SEN case worker do? What are the challenges? Uh, what are the opportunities? Um, and also, I'd like to kind of discuss with you as well why you made the transition from working in recruitment to working for local authorities. So if we can start by first outlining, um, if you would be so kind, as to what an SEN case worker does. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the role of an SEN case varied and rewarding role but it must be quite at some point quite an intense position yeah. that you have. challenges that you face at work? Challenges. Um, so, 
probably up there with the number one challenge is the amount of specialist places available. Um, and when I say specialist places, I mean specialist places available in LA maintaining provisions. So I've worked across a number of LA's um, local authorities during my time in casework, and that's the biggest problem across the board, that there's just not enough spaces in those specialist maintained schools. Um, so what I mean by specialist maintained is schools that the local authority, the, the local authority schools basically for specialist um, children with special needs, there's just not enough of those places. So is, um, it, is it a first come first serve or is it based on the severity of needs? <laughs> So what do you do then? So if you've got a, a case that you feel they need special so, education? Yeah, so in, in that case, um, we have to go out um, to specialist independent schools. Um, now, independent schools are schools that they, they might be, um, you know, like a social, emotional, mental health school, but they aren't a section 41 school, so they aren't basically maintained by the local authority they're independent. So in terms of independent they come up with their own fee structure and their own curriculum because they don't have to follow what the local authority says they have to follow basically. Um, so we would then if we you know if we're at a standstill with our maintain provision um, which you know we, we often are we would then go out to those independent schools um, and try and try and work with them to get our children placed in there really but that that is one of the big problems because a lot of the time with them being independent they have their own criteria and we don't have as much as much sort of I don't want to say power but I can't think of another word sway influence yeah yeah influence as we do with obviously our maintained schools so that's when it becomes really difficult and, and have you found that since COVID there's been more children? Because I was, I was talking to um, an educational psychologist um, over at um, a unit tree in the West Midlands uh, with the principal there. And she was saying that since COVID, they've had a significant increase in the amount of requests being made by parents because they've seen their children at home struggling more. So maybe are more aware and more involved. Have you, have you found that in your experience? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of COVID and, and the impact that it had, 
just phenomenal the, the impact that it had on, on children and young people in particular children and young people with um, special needs and in particular those what, what might have been struggling with, to attend school in the first place we have noticed a massive massive increase can't even tell you how much i've noticed an increase in children that are now um it's called like emotional emotional based school avoidance um and when we get the request for assessment in they're currently not not attending school and a lot of them never went back after covid and since covid and since obviously one one that pressure to to attend school was taken away the children and young people just haven't been able to get back into that routine of attending school um you know, because for, for a long time that demand was taken away from them, so then they adapted again. And Which, yeah, it, it must have been so, I mean, particularly for those children with those learning, you know, all those, yeah. uh, those, those uh, learning. And that, yeah. that become their new normal, that become their new normal routine, not yeah. going to school, you know, not having to, to abide by that structure. So now it's being put back onto them again, they don't, they don't want to do that anymore. They want, they want to stay at home and they want to, you know, play on their, their Xbox or play outside or do whatever it is that they're used to doing now, you know, after, after COVID. So for the listeners at home, how does the initial request in terms of how, who makes the initial uh, request to you? Is it a teacher? Is it a parent? Or, or is it as the school? I mean, how does, how do people use the service? Uh, well, for that, but also for like broader kind of you know the the variety of work that you do, who is the 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 kind of the catalyst that kind of goes right with this this individual this child needs we need to do a an assessment. Yeah. How does yeah. how, how does that start? Um, nine times out of ten, it's the school, and you know if the school hasn't noticed that that a particular child or group of children have needs, then they should be put putting the request for an EHE assessment in. However. We do get those requests coming from parents as well because of a variety of reasons. They might feel that school's not very proactive in putting the, the request for assessment in. Um, they might be able to go home educated. Like I've got a few on my um, caseloads at the moment that are elective home educated, therefore the, the school isn't involved so the parents put that request in. And anyone can put a request in. Um, it doesn't have to be, a, a, you know, a school um, or even a parent. It might be the corporate parents. It might be social work. I mean, we don't see that, obviously, as much, but that can happen, um, you know, a request. And it doesn't have to be. The, the sort of a test for the assessment is so broad um, that, in fact, it, it says may or may, may have special needs. So you can get a variety of requesting for a range of different reasons and they are most commonly made by the school but we are seeing an increase in parental requests now and I think that's partly because parents are doing more research um, particularly after COVID um, which is a good thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Mainly schools. Mainly schools. I mean yeah. it, it's interesting isn't it I mean I, I'm not uh, that I was never, never really you know when it gets to like general election time I never really read any yeah. manifestos. I've never, I just tend to turn up and, you know, whoever I think seems to make the most sense, you know, from what I have seen. Yeah. yeah. 
and like special education needs, you know, in terms of what happens at the general election, how, could that have an impact in terms of, you know, you talk about there needing to be enough places, you know, how are you, and you've, you're in a very great position to talk about this because obviously you've worked at a number of different councils, um, yeah, yeah. you know, how, are there, is there a shortage of spaces, would you say, across the board? Again, please forgive my my, uh, my lack of knowledge on this, but so comparing a the cost to a state school, and I don't, I'm not going to put you on the spot for a specific number, but roughly compared to the cost of an, of funding through the independent school, what's the cost difference? Yeah. I mean, so obviously, obviously there's a charge when it's when it's the specialist maintained school, but if you compare that, for example, you might have a you might be able to commission a place in in one of your maintained specialist schools for, I don't know, around 20,000, 25,000. And then if you're going out to independent, it's usually in excess of, of 70,000 pounds. One recently, um, I've seen them charging in excess of um, 200,000 pounds. Um, and this particular child, you know, she was quite early on in her education. Um, if, if we put them in there at that, that stage, they're not likely to that's mental money but that's a mental yeah, difference well that's it isn't it it's it's but people aren't aware of it are they and then you know they yeah. you know we talk yeah. about at election time it, it's kind of like a, a footnote sometimes it feels like and actually it is so important because if you look at you know the annual budget of the council you know it's yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's being recognised more because a lot of, you know, there are councils across the country that are significantly overspending on special, everybody's overspending on, on independent placement. So, you know, it's being, this message is being spread across the board slowly, but councils are significantly overspending on, on specialist placements. Um, and, 
closest care to keep up with the demands and the trouble is as well you get you get a lot of requests from, from parents for specialist independent schools um, but a lot of the time we have to go with a specialist independent because we don't have a local authority like to like provision that can meet their child's needs whereas if we did have then you know we, we would have an argument for their child to go to our provision our specialist provision but a lot of the time we don't have that option I find like it must be such a. I mean, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when those yeah, conversations. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because And they wouldn't, they wouldn't, most, not all of them, but obviously some, most of the people, the reason, you know, that they're coming to the count, the, the authority is because they can't afford to pay for that themselves. And whilst yeah, they completely, yeah. like, and I don't have children yet, but, you know, you think if you had a child with, with learning difficulties or special needs requirements, obviously you do all you can to get the best for that child. But when you look at it from a, a kind of a, um, what's the word, like a universe, uh, that's not that at all, but it's a way you look at the needs of the community. You know, if you can save... 130, 150,000 pounds a year on provision for the one child. I mean, it's just um, yeah. if the educational yeah. outputs, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the, the impact that, that has on other children as well. Um, and we, we have a duty as a local authority to provide what is what's required to meet the child's needs, but we, we, we don't necessarily have to provide absolutely what above and beyond. Um, but we are sort of being forced into that because we, we don't have provision that's able to meet the needs, um, in, like I say, in a maintained specialist. Um, so in summary, we need more special needs places. Yes. Yeah, that, right. If you're listening, Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah, please, please help us, please. No, I think it's, it's it's so commendable and altruistic, like the work that you and your your teams do where you work. I think it's genuinely, it's, Sometimes, like the whole point of this podcast is so that people know that actually we've got we've got kids that need support and we've got a pot of money yeah. and it's how do we get the most out of that pot of money. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, when we are going out to these to these independent schools and they are charging those significant prices, then obviously as, as caseworkers, we have, to then, we have to then justify that. And, and we are also, we work for the local authorities, so we also are... Um, don't really like this saying, but I can't think of a better one. And um, we we also are keepers of the public purse, so we've got we've got to prove that we've done everything that we can within our power to find a maintained specialist place for young child or young person. But it's just it's not possible because there's no provision. So, like I say, we're again we're being forced to look at independent schools. Um, I mean, I would be. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but it would be interesting to see if somebody. Uh made public what the private schools are paying and it's in specific schools whether not not guilt trip but you know just you know you say sometimes you know particularly when people are saying oh the council's not doing this and that so, well actually you know if you gave if we if we could reduce the fees you know yeah. uh, then then perhaps we yeah, could and, and you know it's it, it's not necessarily about i'm not throwing any shade on independent schools you know we need no no no, 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 no that you are at all but i mean i i am a little bit you know i'd say <laughs> could they help us out a little bit an appropriate an appropriate placement but i do think some of the fees are to 
Sekhtarshana. And, you know, the, the, the amount of children with education health plans isn't decreasing. It's only going up and up and up. Why do you so think I, that I is? You, we've talked about parents. Do you think that's the social media or, or do you, you know, is it population rising? You know, do you think we'll see more and more of a kind of demand on the service as we kind of go through the next five years? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not, you know, since, since I mean, I've, I've been a case worker for, since, for two years, but I've always worked in SEN, even when I worked in recruitment, I worked in SEN. Um, and the, since they were formed in 2014, it, it, there's just been increases year upon year, and especially recently, I think COVID has had a lot to answer with that. Um, because those schools, those children, you know, that were just doing okay, sort of needed a little support, they need maybe coming that through special needs support labs and education health and care plan because of COVID and because of all that time, and um, that they weren't getting that school input and interaction, then their needs have sort of gone over to the next level, if that makes sense. So previously to COVID, they might have been able to catch up and they might not have needed an education health and care plan to do that. But now the night goes because that's the difference with that. Um, two years have made, and I do think obviously social media plays, plays a big part now. There are um, a lot of a lot of groups, a lot of there's a lot more awareness, um, which is obviously a great thing. But sometimes I think that there's maybe maybe you know people. I mean, just so everyone listen, yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not a, it's not a silver bullet or a, you know, a one. No, no, it's not a golden ticket. Unfortunately, as much as, as much as you know, I wish it was. It isn't, um, and I think that's what's been drummed into. That's the, the message um, that has that has gone out to a lot of parents, and I totally understand from a parental perspective. You know, I don't have children, but if I did. And they were struggling, and I'd be doing everything in my power to get them the appropriate support. Um, but the EHCP isn't always the golden ticket, what people think it is. Just for everyone at home, the, the, the new Children and Families Act that was brought in in 2014 that Kelsey just talked about there, the, the view of it was to offer simpler, improved and consistent help for children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, which is referred to in councils as SEND. Uh, the, the view was that as well as protecting the school's budget, it was, it was to extend provision from birth to 25 years of age that was to give families a greater choice in decisions and ensure needs are probably met. The new system was, you know, extended the rights and protection to young people by introducing a new education, health and care plan, which is what Kelsey has been talking about, you know, here today. And professionals, you know, were also able to provide more tailored support to families. I mean, there's a guy called, um, uh, there was a the children families minister at the time, Edward Timpson, said today is a landmark moment in improving the lives of children with SEND and their families. These reforms put children and parents at the heart of the system. And I agree with that. But just you and I talking now, Kelsey, yeah, it's great, absolutely. but you've got to then back it up with enough places for the children. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, there's only so much that SEND officers, we, we just work on the ground. Of it. We, we don't make those big decisions in, you know, funding and, and getting getting those place, you know, new schools, but when we, 
we have an input, we can, you know, very much voice our opinions on that and, and say, you know, we need more, but we're not the key decision makers. In fact, when we don't, we're not the key decision makers in isolation in regards to, you know, agreeing whether a child gets an education health and care plan or not. Um, we're actually just, you know, the person who feeds back those decisions. Um, and a specialist, it's not the decision that the families are looking for. That can be quite hard as well. Um, obviously, because we're, we're the ones who have to get that get that message across. Um, and and with, same with you know different schools being agreed and things like that. We're, we're the person who delivers that message. Absolutely. I mean, just going back. Yeah. Sorry. It, it's the other things that we're also fighting with. Um, behind the scenes, I think people don't necessarily not aware of really. And this is the thing across the board, isn't it? You know, you think about what a council does and people think it's just taking the bins out. But, you know, you and I have just talked about one very important, but, you know, uh, one element of what a council does. Um, yeah. You know, and maybe for yourself, just, I mean, just kind of uh, conscious that uh, I, it's me, it's me, it's me, uh, uh, I, you know, going on. Uh, but you've, you've given some great points. I just want to make sure we keep to my time slot, which I always run over because I waffle. Um <laughs> Are you happy that you made the transition into local government doing this this work? Yeah, I absolutely yeah, I absolutely am. Um, I mean, it's a lot more rewarding. Um, I find than doing than doing recruitment. However, it's a lot more. It's a lot more than what I thought it was going to be. When when I first you know when I entered the job and when I first took the role of being chaser, like I thought it would be quite a nice. Role, um, and it's just not that at all. It's quite, it, it's quite intense, um, and it can be a lot, a lot to manage. Um, and I think more than anything, I just wish that I had more, I had more time and had more capacity um, to be able to give that really intense support to the children and families that I know that they really need. Um, but when you have, you know, a caseload of three hundred and fifty children and young people. You support what you are able to give, especially to the children and, and families. Is not limited, but you are time bound a lot of the time, and obviously you've got to make sure that you're adhering to the statutory responsibilities as well. Um, and and that has to become your priority because that's what SCN case workers are there to do to follow the SCN code of practice, and obviously the Children and Families Act, to make sure that we're getting those. Um, education, health and care plans issued within that 20 weeks, um, wherever possible. Um, we are, you know, completing our responsibilities around the annual review, um, updating the EHCP and responding to the annual review paperwork, as well as managing the requests and for, for changes in placement um, and everything else that comes in in between. So, yeah, I love it and I, I wouldn't change doing it for the world, but it is Sometimes it's a lot to manage. No, but, well, I just want to say thank you to for your continued efforts and everyone else no, who's working in Send across the country. Uh, it's an important part of yeah. of community support. So thank you so much for that. But we're going to run out of time there. So Kelsey, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Um, yeah, no problem. If you, oh, it's been delightful. Is that honestly? I could do this for the whole hour, but I'm like, we've got, we've got to keep it to half an hour. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's fine. <laughs> well look thank you so much for coming on and to everyone listening at home if you enjoyed the podcast please like and share but for us from here for now it's uh it's goodbye and we'll speak to you soon thank you so much